Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast looking to buy an NFT of Titus Bramble. My name is Cameron McDonald and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. A lot has gone on in the last week with the first leg of the Champions League quarterfinals behind us and some of the post-season narratives already starting to take shape, like who should be involved in the Euros and which players are planning their exit strategy this summer. As always, timestamps are in the description and let's start by looking at one of the strangest things happening at the moment, Messi Lingard? Yeah, this is a, a real purple patch for a player that has you know, often been defined by the almost humorous lack of ability to score. I think last season, one of the things we talked about and one of the big sort of football meme narratives was that bet that the guy had on Jesse Lingard to not score or assist all season, uh, which was a bet that would have come good but for his goal at the very, very end of the season. And um, So it's a real, real surprise in a lot of ways to see this player just take the pitch with such confidence and play such good football. And he's got, you know, eight goals in the nine games he's played for West Ham. And so I think it gives rise, uh, as ever, to a couple of interesting questions. Um, namely, with the Euros around the corner, should he start for England? Um, so there's a few things to unpack there, but just to open it up with that most broad of questions, and we'll circle back to you know our yes or no's and, and our justification for them over the course of the segment. What's your answer to that? Should he start for England? Sure. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that he was kind of a meme before, because it's almost like the only consistent thing about him is that he is a meme. Like He's now just a, a meme of a good player. Um, with this Messi Lingard, like people comparing him to, I saw a um, another podcast comparing him to like I've never seen an English player play like that since George Best, or a British player play like that since George Best, and um, yeah, it, it's unbelievable the statistics: eight goals and three assists in nine games. Mm. Um, which you know, for my money, any player that is able to record those kind of numbers kind of has to be in contention. Um, so I think he's definitely in the conversation and I I personally think that if he can continue this run even for another month or so I think he should probably be on the plane because that level of like explosive output is just I I think he he has the potential to be almost like the most impactful attacking player we have if he can keep this up yeah, I mean, that that's the big question, isn't it, really? Obviously, if he can replicate the eight goals in nine games type of thing, then he's going to be an, an invaluable asset. Um, I think the, what is interesting when it comes to England is sort of looking at why Jesse Lingard has been good and sort of looking at this has been a really great nine games for him, but it has been nine games. Is that in itself enough to outweigh the sort of seven years that we've seen of him, where I think he's had one season at United where he looked not actively quite bad, but a lot of the other years, I mean, currently he's on eight Premier League goals. That's his best ever record. It's tied with United 17-18. And you've got to look at some of the other players who would potentially start ahead of him. Um, I think you know, obviously he should be on the plane. Whether he should start is a little more, bit more of a complex question for me. Um, and I think Jesse Lingard actually is a really interesting player to look at for this because he's one player who, often in a very reverse fashion, has had very different international form to his club form. I think his form for United has been largely disappointing, whereas his form for England in a lot of the major tournaments has been surprisingly good. He was a mainstay in the, you know, World Cup side that we had that reached the semi-finals. I think he only scored one goal in that tournament, and it was against Panama, but he was a really key player in a lot of the games that that England had to grind out. Um, He reminds me of, like, you know, there are quite a few players that do that that don't do so well in the league and then just whip it out for their country. I always think of Danny Welbeck as the other example of someone who just was weirdly good for England. Yeah, he does pull it out of the hat sometimes, doesn't he? And yeah, so he's he's definitely not unfamiliar to the the stage uh, playing even under Gareth Southgate, as you said, twenty eighteen World Cup. Um, and I I guess it's weird because in in one way it's kind of like is he returning to being a good player, but then he's never looked this good before. It feels to me like he's turned a massive corner in terms of as you mentioned at the beginning, his confidence and his output. Like this to me, despite the fact that he was in the squad and did play for England in 2018, is an entirely different player. Um, and yeah, I think a month, seven years, obviously there's there's like a disparity there. If, if, he, if he dies down again in a few weeks' time, then I think we can all just say like, well, that was a really weird blip on the radar and go about our daily business. But if he keeps this up until the end of the season and if he helps, you know, West Ham push to fourth place, I think absolutely get him him on the pitch. 
I think the form is definitely very difficult to ignore. But what I was getting at there was, you know, if you can look at Jesse Lingard in terms of there was Man United Lingard and there was England Lingard and the two were very different players in terms of how reliable they were and how impactful they could be in terms of a squad. Ironically enough, does the same now hold true for West Ham Lingard and England Lingard? If we're looking at Jesse Lingard in terms of how good he's been in the Premier League, can we expect that to necessarily translate to his international form? Well, I kind of feel like the I want to shift that narrative slightly, and I just feel like the only place he has performed like meme terrible Lingard is at Manchester United. Mm-hmm. For England, he's been good, if not if unspectacular, and mm-hmm. for West Ham, he's just knocking everyone's socks off. So I kind of feel like Man U seems to be the you the, know the, the, odd, one the odd one out there rather than um, England form or West Ham form. So yeah, I mean, I think. If he's pushing for a move away, if if it kind of becomes clear that he's just hated being there or he's not had the right coaching or you know never been given the opportunities for whatever reason, I think that it could become clear in the next few months whether or not Manchester United have massively been holding him back as a player. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think there are a lot of other examples of players who've had similar positions both you know, on the pitch and in terms of their fortunes to Jesse Lingard. Memphis Depay obviously was very similar to him in terms of playing profile and just had a rough, rough time there. Angel Di Maria was another one who just couldn't really hack that wing position. Uh, Alexis Sanchez is yet another example. It just seems to not be a great place for a winger. But I sort of want to address with Jesse Lingard... You know, we look at a player like this, and there's a big part of it that is just football's a mental sport. There's no, there's no way of really explaining these things. But there are a few things that we can look at, in my opinion, that can inform a little bit of, you know, they, they can tell us a little bit about why he's he's picked up this form. Um, and I think there are off the pitch factors and on the pitch factors. And one of the big on the pitch factors, which I think is relevant because it'll also come to, you know, see if he can fit into the English side very well, is where he's been playing. Um, and I mentioned a lot of wingers there, and wingers have often had a really tough time at Manchester United. And that's where Jesse Lingard played the majority of his football for United. Um, over the years, he's played 197 games on the wing compared to only 74 games in the number 10 role. And of course, he has played seven of the nine games that he's played for West Ham United in the number 10 role. So a big part of that is going to be confidence, but a big part of that is going to be playing not only in your favoured position, which is going to have a psychological effect, but also tactically. I think when we watch West Ham and all of these games, Lingard has been served extremely well by not having to spend any of his time out on the wings trying to pick up loose balls and challenge them. Most games, he's standing a few feet back from Jared Bowen or whoever's playing up front in that game and just really enjoying the chance to be able to pounce on those second balls, to sit on the edge of the box, to facilitate play into the final third. And that's where he's been best. When we look at England, I think it's pretty safe bet to say that England are going to be playing with a three-man midfield or at, at most different sort of a, a two-man midfield and a 3-4-3. Three, three. It's going to be a flat midfield. There's not going to be that 10 roll for Lingard to take up. So is that going to mean we won't see this West Ham Lingard if he's not able to play as a number 10? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think one thing that Gareth Southgate's shown is that he can be tactically diverse and he can shift the formations. And even just switching from a 3-4-2-1... To a three-four-one-two, having mm-hmm. you know one of those slightly wider, um, close-in wingers tucking in behind, and having that other on the right drop uh, move forward as a second striker, I think could definitely work for England. And and even someone like Raheem Sterling, I think, could do that job very well. Um, or you know Jack Grealish, I think, could do it as well. I think even someone like Jaden Sancho doesn't need to be that far wide. Although I mm-hmm. do want to stress by saying that I feel like that's probably his best position is out wide but yeah as you say Jesse Lingard looks way better down the middle of the pitch and I just feel like it's one of those things where you look at it and it's like was this not clear he's not a very physical player he he operates really well in like finding intelligent pockets of space in and around the box rather than you know putting in an inch perfect pass to the back post with his weak foot I just I'm a, do you know what I mean you have those moments where you're a little confused as to what has been going through the minds of previous managers. Um, yeah, how it took this long to figure out that his best position is is ne- on neither wing because, like you said, he's not massively physical, he's not enormously pacey, he's not a slow player, but he's not rapid either. So you do kind of wonder what were the attributes that made people think he's got to play wing. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, in terms of like how England would use him, I could see him playing in the attacking role of a 4-3-3. I think you'd probably need to have someone like maybe someone like Jordan Henderson uh, as, a, as a more defensive second midfielder 
doing mm. that shuttle role and then, you know, a third more defensive-minded um, midfielder, someone like Declan Rice. So you need to balance it out. But I, I do think it's not... It, it's doable. It's not so, so unimaginable. You, you think there is a way to sort of fit him into that role which he's most comfortable in? Well, it's just kind of my, my hope for Gareth Southgate and my hope for England is that we get the best players from the Premier League and from, you know, from England as a, as a country and we find systems that work for them. And obviously you've got to balance that out with, you know, building a system and then trying to find players that fit those roles. But you, you just hope that if someone is having an incredible season that they don't get overlooked. So that's more of a, that's like, in my mind, that's a lesser point because what I want to judge first is like, does he deserve to be there? And then we can talk about whether or not like he fits in perfectly in the current system or whether or not the system needs to be changed to suit the players that are going. Sure, sure. I'll, the only reason I raise it is just because I think it's it's a question that definitely Southgate would be asking and everyone in that setup of like, you know, just because he's playing well for West Ham, does that mean he'll play well for us? And I think there are two you know, reasons that that's a very big question. Firstly, is obviously the number 10, um, you know, role that he's picked up that we haven't really seen England using very lately. But as you say, that is more easily remedied than than the second thing I want to talk about, which is the atmosphere at West Ham United, which I think there's a real case to be made is uniquely beneficial um, for Jesse Lingard. I think that West Ham at the moment... Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll start with Jesse Lingard. I think Jesse Lingard had a very interesting way that he was viewed at Manchester United. He was increasingly viewed as one of the older heads in the squad, um, and that's partly because United did have such a, you know, a, a carousel of young players coming forwards, whether it's your Martial or your Rashford or, or more lately Greenwood. And I think as the time went by, there was an increasing thought from both fans and the hierarchy that he'd sort of outgrown tolerance for some of the antics he was getting up to and all the sort of, you know, dancing. And when he launched his clothing brand and Roy Keane came down on him as he is wont to do, like a ton of bricks. Um, whereas at West Ham, he's very much, he's sort of like the new kid at school. He's not the disappointing, you know, <laughs> older older sibling who's never achieved everything. He's sort of the new exciting guy. And even in relation to the rest of the squad, Mark Noble has been reported has come out, taken him under his wing. He's been giving yeah, yeah. him loads of advice about stuff, you know, off the pitch as well as on the pitch. And I think that has really reflected itself in how he's engaged with the squad. Shane Thomas of the Athletic of the Athletic also wrote a really good piece about how the squad atmosphere is really really jovial um, at West Ham, which is definitely something that we've seen lacking at Manchester United over the over the last few years. Um, apparently, all the players are really great friends off the pitch. You know, Sufal and Suchek are, are really good mates to hang out all the time. Uh, they all play. Um, they like do quizzes and like team activities when when they're not playing games. They all hang out, have a laugh. You can see they're all having fun, and a big part of that is because Kevin Nolan, who obviously played at West Ham United for a long time, is the first team coach there and apparently he's instrumental in sort of keeping everyone really happy um so i think at west ham they have this network and particularly this partnership between mark noble as the club captain and kevin nolan as the first team coach that has managed to get the best possible atmosphere for jesse lingard and other players as well i think west ham have several players that are performing above their their level they're a squad that's you know greater than the sum of their parts at the moment i think is is fair to say um all all of which to say West Ham are doing a really, really good job of that. Will England be able to capture that same lightning in the bottle? It's tricky. I think that the main thing is West Ham have given him a new lease of life. They've given him a platform to express himself. He feels comfortable there, as he said. Like he feels really confident. He enjoys playing with his teammates, his mates. And, you know, can you take that confidence and then, you know, move it into the international stage? We don't know that yet. I think it's, it's, always, it's always different player on player. Um, I, I think that he could, but I do get what you mean that there are a lot of variables and, you know, if Southgate's looking at his, his formations and thinking, well, if I wanted to get Lingard in, I'd have to change all of this stuff. I do kind of understand the idea that like, realistically, are you going to do that for a guy who's only been good for half a season? Mm, well, if even that, nine games so far. I know, so but that's with the not- assumption that he continues to be good until the end of the season. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no, 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 I agree. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it definitely is a big gamble to look at, even if he has this great season finishing out, there are a lot of variables. Is it worth benching the players that you know are a little bit more tried and tested, both in the league and internationally, in order to accommodate Lingard? Because if he played, you, that means that someone who is already in the squad is, is not going to, obviously. And so a lot of those players have earned their, their position over the last few years. Is it fair or even wise to eject those players based on a period of good form? 
Well, it's interesting. I I don't know, but I mean, there is some. Um... There's one player that uh, we kind of talked about before and that I wanted to single out as, as someone to compare Jesse Lingard to, which was Raheem Sterling. And I think that, you know, I guess we've got to preface this initially by saying that Sterling is a regular starter in the England team. And what we're really deciding is whether or not, I guess, Lingard should should be on the plane. But I think it's more just kind of isolating an individual, looking at whether or not, you know, they're actually leagues above Lingard and I guess kind of separating it from the cheerleader effect of like the whole squad playing as one the whole team you know being in unison and working as, as a well-oiled machine if you take a cog out and actually look at it how, how does that compare so it came the reason why I wanted to single out Raheem Sterling is because he struck me during the most recent international break as being a luxury player um, and I'm going to say luxury player because you know, when I watched the game against San Marino, I was struck by two things. First, I mean, the only thing, the first thing that jumped out was like how incredibly good a game that San Marino goalkeeper was having. And the second was Raheem Sterling. He was captain on the night, the most experienced international player on the pitch. And he's so unbelievably bad in front of goal. Yes, he scored one, which was about five yards out and would have gone straight at the keeper, but for a deflection. Um, he had an absolute shocker all night, misfiring in all directions. Um, for those of you who think I'm exaggerating, I encourage you to look at some extended highlights. Like, it's bad. He had two free headers in the six-yard box. He had a miss from a tight angle, like seven yards out. A woeful shot from the centre of the box with his left. Two shots high, wide, and very slow from outside the box. And that those were all of his shots. So, I know what you're thinking. Someone like Raheem Sterling, he scores a lot of goals. He, he's got the same amount of Premier League goals as Ruud Van Nistelrooy, for example, which is joint 31st of all time. Um, and he has a very slightly better goals to minutes ratio than Eden Hazard. So, you know, these are like elite players. However, again, this this idea of the cheerleader effect and, and the team that he's in, we've kind of debated whether or not, you know, Aguero would score as many goals if if he wasn't working in that City system. And I think Sterling is very much someone that, that benefits from playing in a system that creates a lot of chances. And the reason that I would say that is because he's seventh in the all-time charts already in the Premier League for big chances missed and is the highest non-striker on that list. He's sixth this season for big chances missed and was fifth last season. I say non-striker because you know, there's, of course, an expectation that strikers get more chances, more shots on target, get themselves into positions more regularly. So you know, it's expected that they'd score more and miss more. And, and and also backs up your your suggestion that as a winger for City, he has more chances than the average winger, which which may or may not inflate his goal total. Sure, exactly. Um, and you know, it's I, I really want to like Raheem Sterling as a player as much as I do as a person, but I, I often watch highlights of City games and find myself like just groaning at the TV as he misses another sitter, and I'm I'm like nowhere near being a City fan. Um, you know, the famous one, and this serious one, was um, his miss against Lyon in the Champions League quarterfinals last year, the 85th minute, which would have made it 2-2. Um, you know, the game ended 3-1, City got knocked out. It's not a small game. Um, another example is, um, I would say, you know, last week, he didn't even start for City against Dortmund in a big game. And it wasn't like he'd been playing 90 minutes in, on the weekend as well. He got brought on as a sub for the last half hour. So I think that was a tactical decision from Pep Guardiola. And I wouldn't be surprised if Pep's looking at him and thinking, I don't trust you to put the ball in the back of the net when you need to, when you get one chance or two chances, because I think you need five. Because I look at him and I think you need five chances. Is Jesse Lingard better than that, potentially? Yeah, so so you see maybe Raheem Sterling as like, you know, a, a case to be made. If Raheem Sterling, who is the second or third name on the team sheet at the moment, is the second or third name on the team sheet, why shouldn't Jesse Lingard get a shot? Exactly. Yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting point. I think that Raheem Sterling is not a great finisher. I don't think that that's a a novel idea. I don't think that's something that we're the first ones to to come up with. But I do think that he offers a lot else as a winger. I think just generally speaking, maybe just because defenders haven't figured out how bad he is at finishing, but just having a player like that (laughs) running at you just creates so much space for players like Harry Kane, which is something we've seen in recent years um, for England, just having him stretch defences and allowing Kane more space to operate in. Um, And I think, you know, maybe Lingard potentially could be a beneficiary of this if he's got that option to to play a through ball to Sterling. I think that Sterling is not a much maligned player because I think he does 
miss a lot of chances. But I think that his bad finishing does not exclude him from being a good player. I still think he's he's a top player. Um, you know, you're and, absolutely and, and, right. I mean, don't get me wrong. Everything else about his game is great, but it's more just kind of the suggestion that you can can someone that high up the team sheet and as a modern attacking winger really afford to be so inconsistent in front of goal and inconsistent in big games to be untouchable are there untouchables in the attacking midfield lineup for England yeah no I think that's a very fair point um just just to wrap it up the the old statement there the last thing that I would say about Jesse Lingard um and this is only this is a minor point or a major point depending on how much you attribute to stats and XG and things of that nature. Uh, and that's just an observation um, that I was doing while I was doing a little bit of research for this. Jesse Lingard is, based on his underlying stats, massively, massively overperforming. Now, we do sometimes see this when players just improve massively relative to their performance over a longer period of time. But what it often does suggest is that the form that he's in is really unsustainable. Um, sure. And if, the, if that is the case for me, I think, you know... No argument here, and I don't think you'll get that argument from anyone except the most dyed-in-the-wool, you know, anti-Lingard Manchester City, or, or Manchester United, maybe, fans <laughs> saying that he's been incredible. But I think that there are signs to suggest that not only is it unsustainable, but also it might be specific form to West Ham. For that reason, should he be on the plane? Absolutely. Should he start? For me, barring major injuries, I'd say no. Yeah, that's um, that's definitely a fair judgment. I think... um. The main thing that I would take away from this is that I think I speak for all England fans when I say I'm so excited to see what he's going to be like in two months' time, in three months' time, in two years' time, um, because the form that he's on and the progression that he's had since joining West Ham is incredible, and you just want competition in your squad as an international mm. team, and you know it's it's exciting. Well, I mean, at the at the very least, there's that. Even if Jesse Lingard doesn't set foot on the pitch for England in this tournament, you can bet that all those other players, the Jack Grealishes and the Raheem Sterlings, will have had a little bit more of it. The, the heat's been turned up underneath them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Moving into guessing game, you've got one for me this week, Rupert. I do indeed, yeah. I'm excited to see how you get on with this guy. Um, or girl. <laughs> it's gay. <laughs> well... Um, so this player had an up and down career. Uh, was okay. once criticised by his manager, who said after a game that he came close to a zero rating. He was also on occasion publicly called out by his teammates, even his own agent, and once bizarrely wore a rival team's top during a TV appearance, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, led to some criticism from fans. Sure it did. Um, he has played with the likes of Hernan Crespo, Michael Essien, Kaka, Luis Figo, and Patrick Vieira. As well as both Colo and Yaya Torre. Sure, sure. And he is the joint top scorer of all time for his country in the Confederations Cup and finished joint top goal scorer in the 2012 Euros. Interesting. You know, this is one of those that I'm pretty confident I know who it is off the bat, but <laughs> every time I think that, I always end up getting bamboozled at the 11th hour. Well, I can only hope to bamboozle but uh, time will tell. We will see. So always one of those situations where I'm like, ah, yeah, this was Rude Van Nistelrooy, of course. And you're like, ah, this was actually his brother, Lars Van Nistelrooy, <laughs> who played briefly for the Man United under-13s. I do love a good pranking. Um, <laughs> well, you, you'll have to wait to find out. Um, moving on, and we will return to that later in the podcast. Um, let's talk about Harry Kane, who apparently according to everyone except him, wants to leave Spurs if they don't qualify for the Champions League. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. It's been reported by a lot of different reputable news sources that he has said this to Spurs. And, you know, it, it's an interesting thing from him because he has always been very much Mr. Spurs, Mr. Toe the party line. Ironically, one of the big talking points we're going to have here concerning him leaving is the fact that he chose to sign a six-year contract uh, two years ago when Spurs were um, off the back of that Champions League final. So it is quite weird that he has come out and said uh, supposedly said this anyway um 
and maybe perhaps a sign of how negative things have got at Spurs. I mean, certainly after their their 3-1 loss to Manchester United over the weekend, a lot of people were making the very salient and observant point that if you've just finished a match and Hyung Min Son, the most smiley player in the history of the Premier League, is frowning, something's deeply, deeply wrong at the club. Uh, and this perhaps compounds that. Um, I think it's interesting to look at things um, in terms of what this will mean, because this... This statement, if we take it at face value, which for all intents and purposes we will be from from this one on, um, now that Tottenham are out of the Europa League, their only past qualification to the Champions League is finishing in the top four or potentially fifth if an English team was a Champions League and there's the right, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I just don't think that there's any chance that this happens. The Manchester sides are both way ahead. Even United are 14 points ahead of Spurs. Can't really see them finishing above Chelsea at the moment because they just seem to be a new side under Thomas Tuchel. Can't really see them finishing above West Ham for the, a lot of the reasons we just mentioned. They've scored nine goals in their last three games. They're in the form of their life. They've got Messi Lingard in the 10, who's who's also enjoying the form of his life. I could maybe see them finishing above Leicester because Leicester, as we spoke about all the end of last season and even the beginning of this season, are having that classic Brendan Rodgers final third of the season. Um, and I could maybe see them finishing above Liverpool, who've been really up and down this season. But again, a lot like Chelsea, although I would say to a slightly lesser degree, have slightly started to figure things out a bit. They've found out that if you play centre-backs at centre-back, it works out. And they found out that Thiago is actually a decent player if he plays in a balanced midfield. So all of these teams provide a massive obstacle to Spurs finishing the Champions League. I just don't see it happening. So it's quite, you know, it's quite realistic that they don't and Kane ends up leaving. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to I'm happy to stake my claim on Spurs not finishing top four, and I'm happy to, to accept that there will be egg on my face if I'm wrong. I'm going to say it, yeah. I was looking at the table the other day, and there were like four or five teams I thought could all finish third and fourth, and mm. Spurs weren't one of them. Um, and I think it's going to be so hotly contested, as you said, among all those clubs, that they're just not going to get close. I don't think they're going to get anywhere near it. They have zero momentum. They've got, z- like, yeah, I just... For me, no. Agreed. Um, so, yeah. put that aside, we'll assume that Spurs don't qualify for the Champions League this year. Um, you know, will this affect his form closing out the season if he if he does want to leave? Well, this is one of those things. I mean, we've talked about it in the past when we've talked about um, not so much Sergio Aguero being told he can leave, because that was very much sort of like a, a kindness from the club to announce it. But when we talked about, for example... Um, Marco Rose, remember the Borussia Mönchengladbach manager announced he was going to join Dortmund? Or who, who was the other one? There was another player announcing they were going to let Upper Meccano, that was it, announced he was going to join Bayern. I just always think that's so weird because even if you're a consummate professional, which I think everyone would agree Harry Kane is, if you've got one eye on the exit door, are you going to be playing your best football? And if in some sort of freak you know, turn of results... Spurs do find themselves in game week 38 in a position where it's a win that's going to make them finish in the Champions League positions. If Harry Kane has sort of already mentally got his suitcase packed and he's, he's out the door, is he going to have like as much of an impact in that final game to, to be their match winner? And he is, let's be fair, their main match winner. Um, I, I saw this and I know that he hasn't come out and publicly confirmed it, but I was like, whoever's... Whoever's, uh, whichever source has leaked this has maybe not done him a big favour, especially because, you know, who's who's got one of the most fragile egos in management in, in the world? Jose Mourinho. <laughs> Jose. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> like, it, it's true. I mean, I think um, it all really depends on whether or not he wants to like try and cement his legacy as a Spurs legend and, you know, wants to, to push on to a new club with positivity fair, behind what, what, him. Or if he just wants out. Personally, if I was him, I'd just want out. But he is a professional, as you said. I could definitely see it also going the other way, that he's been at the club so long. I, I could really imagine that he does want to, to end on good terms and end with a good battle form. Yeah, well, I mean, also, to be fair, I think whatever Harry Kane does from now until the end of the season, he will be cemented as a Spurs legend. I think he could literally, like, <laughs> you were talking about a player who turned up in a, in a press conference in a Royal shirt. I genuinely believe Harry Kane could turn up to, like, a match of the day interview in an Arsenal shirt and Spurs fans would still be like, we love him. <laughs> That's a bold claim. Um, I, uh, I don't want to hard disagree with you, but I disagree with you. I think, he, well, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe that's hyperbole, but he is just one of their greatest players of all time. Maybe their greatest player of all time. I just yeah, I mean, he, I think he's he's top so five, difficult for him top to five Premier League favor. strikers of all time. But just for Spurs, I mean, like, I think I think it's difficult for, for him to do anything, not be a legend. But looking at um, 
you know, why he might want to do this. I think it's really interesting looking at the trajectory of his career at Spurs, because according to these reports, he's just, he, he wants to leave because of a lack of ambition by the club, reportedly. And what's interesting about this is it reminds me of a lot of other big departures that Tottenham have had in the past. Players who've sort of thought they were going to make it and thought they were going to drag Spurs up with them and build things up, but things haven't really happened. Um, one of the big obstacles to Harry Kane's departure that we're going to be talking about in a second is this six-year contract that he signed. And he signed that right after Spurs had been in the Champions League final and had finished second in the Premier League uh, uh, the year prior, I believe. So there was a point when you could kind of understand why Harry Kane thought this club is going places, I'm going to be the captain and the guy to take it. And now it's feeling like, well, I've stayed here for a while. And it's not happening. I want to go. Well, yeah, I mean, I think... Um... There's one very obvious thing that's changed to the club um, since the 2018 um, final in the Champions League, and that's the manager. Uh, I, I fully get the idea that he's just come off the back of a really successful campaign. They've almost won the the hardest trophy to win in the whole of European football, I would say. And, you know, he, he's looking around and, and the club's saying, like, we want to commit. We're going to stake a claim. Um, he feels really good about the manager. Hell yeah, I'll sign a six-year contract. I'm here to stay. Six months later, that manager's fired. And he goes, well, well what's happening now? And he yeah, looks the, around. the project I backed is, is, is entire, over. All of your momentum's gone. All of your confidence is gone. Because the confidence and the momentum and the system was built around the manager that just got fired. And you signed your contract based on the manager that just got fired. I completely could see why any rational person would be like, well, I've, I've been messed around here. Yeah, and it's a re- it's a real you know incident of bathos, isn't it? Because there he was in the glow of sort of this manager that had taken them to heights they hadn't seen for ages, and a Champions League final. Here they are, having been knocked out of the Europa League by Dinamo Zagreb across two legs. So it's a real chalk and cheese situation. They do have the Carabao Cup on April twenty fifth, which you know will provide Ooh. Spurs the opportunity to to well exactly exactly sweet the, sweet Carabao <laughs> Cup silverware. <laughs> Yes, their, their first chance to win any trophy since 2007-8, when again they won um, the Carabao Cup, of course, then just the English League trophy um, in, under Juan de Ramos. But apparently this just isn't enough to, to get them excited. I think that's fair enough. I think <laughs> if that is good enough to get you excited, that would be a, a real lack of ambition. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I watched um, I watched a video about the, the best Premier League strikers of all time, and it put him in the top three with Alan Shearer and Thierry Henry. And I actually didn't disagree with it. He just, his output consistently, goals to games ratios are all just unbelievably good. Um, and yeah, you, you would just look at it and think, it's not good enough for me. I want more. Um, especially because there's so much like toxicity around the club. It's not like, you know, someone like Alan Shearer at the end of his Newcastle career, uh, where there was, you know, there's such joy in him playing for his local side. And, you know, he then um, became the manager shortly afterwards. He doesn't have that kind of relationship with the club or the hierarchy. No, it definitely doesn't seem that way. Um, And I think what you sort of hinted at this there, what's quite an interesting point about talking about Harry Kane as one of the greatest Premier League strikers ever, is that there's always been an air of him where you've sort of gone, and he could be even better playing in front of the right team. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine him in front of City's um, midfield. That terrifies me. Yeah, well, well, this is the thing. If he's played this well in front of, you know, the, this cobbled together Spurs squad and a Mourinho <laughs> that doesn't really feel like he's enjoying himself, exactly playing in front of the Man City, you know, midfield or, or any midfield that really embodied attacking football could be absolutely terrifying. Um, so, so I want to put the question to you. We've just talked about he's got three and a half years left on this contract. Spurs don't have to let him go, but should they? Should they sell him given the chance and given the right price? in your opinion? Uh, no, because it's the only thing keeping them from like 12th place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they've got their steely claws in, in around him, his neck for the next three years. And I don't think they're going to part ways with him for anything less than like 120 million. Well, I think that that realistically is the price. I think 120, 130, 140 or more is a kind of price that you would need to, to pry Harry Kane away. I can also see teams going in with that amount of money. I can absolutely see that happening. Um, if yeah, that kind fair. of bid comes in, if that kind of bid comes in, you, you reckon if you're Spurs, you're saying not a chance. We want to keep him. I kind of just think that you know the the classic rebuild of like selling the big player and buying a bunch of little ones. It so rarely works. Mm-hmm. So rarely do you find the value because you're always going to get at least one or two of those players um, flop. I mean, Bale Bale leaving Spurs is the perfect example. 
Um, yeah, they picked example. up they picked up a couple of good players, and they picked up quite a few players who who didn't make the cut. So I think I think I think one. I think they they picked up seven players. It was um, Roberto Soldado, Eric Lamella, Etienne Capoue, Vlad Chiriches. Paulinho and Nasser Chadley, along with Christian Eriksen, and only really Eriksen had a good was a good buy. You could maybe argue Lamella has done enough over the course of time to been here. I wouldn't agree with that, but I, I suppose some people would. Um, but yeah, only one really standout top player, and they lost Gareth Bale for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good, good, uh, good memory on you. Um, so uh, I, I just don't think that it would make sense for Spurs to get rid of him unless. Someone's paying hand over fist for him. Maybe 120 is too low. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to value players anymore, to be honest with you. Um, well, I think that no, probably think... 120 million is maybe a fair price for him and Spurs would demand an unfair price. Yeah, no, I, I think there's two things there that I, I want to sort of latch on to because I actually am going to slightly pivot and say, should Spurs sell him given the chance, given the right price? Absolutely, yes, they should. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for this. First and foremost, by and large... Whenever a player is no longer happy playing at a club, you just don't want to hold on to them for too much longer. And the worst possible situation for Spurs is for a really, you know, disenfranchised Harry Kane to feel like he has no power at the club. He is just, a, you know, like their, their, <laughs> their servant who has to do their bidding and has no sort of autonomy. I think that if he feels like he's been treated with respect by the club and is allowed to leave for the right price he's actually going to have a much higher chance of not moving somewhere else to spite them. Whereas if they hold on to him and he's just dropping goose eggs every week because he's really unhappy, I can then see him going, you know, I will move to Manchester United to spite the club. I will move somewhere else and, and score a hat-trick in the first game against them. Um, and I think just in general, holding on to a player once they've expressed their desire to leave, it rarely ever works. It almost always sees a massive reduction in the player's yeah. performance and subsequently value. The only thing that I would say to disagree with that is like we're seeing this exact parallel at Barcelona with Leo Messi. I'm not trying to say that Messi is, is you know, that Kane is English Messi, but mm -hmm. they're obviously, you know, two world-class players at the top of their game and Messi really wanted to leave in the summer, couldn't, was really disillusioned, disaffected. You just get on with it. He's now, he's now the top goal scorer by four goals um, in La Liga and he also is second in the assist table. So he's still dominating. Like he still is a world-class player, regardless of whether or not he'd rather be elsewhere. I think you can make the case, though. That to be fair, I think this is just a testament to how good. And this is going off on a tangent, but because of how good Lionel Messi is, I think that despite those great numbers, that's not a great year for him. No, it's not. <laughs> but but like, even like that, though, is a good example of the fact that to keep a player like Messi and like Kane, even if he's not playing at like a hundred percent, eighty percent Kane is still better than like anyone the else they have on their books. No, I, I take that point. I take that point. It's a fair one. The, the second reason I think that Harry Kane, it could be a really good time to sell him, is I think that Spurs could potentially find themselves in a really interesting situation in this summer's market if they did sell Kane. The general consensus, and you sort of mentioned how it's kind of hard to value players today, and I agree because the general consensus leading towards this summer window has been that because of all the financial turmoil caused by the pandemic, because every club has got you know issues with their coffers, there's just going to be generally lower fees than usual as compared to the last 10 years or so where every summer it's been just another crazy one of just like, remember when 50 million was a massive fee and you would that would be the transfer of the summer now you've got teams like West Ham will shell out 40 50 million for a player and it's just like it's commonplace if you want a good player it's 50 million plus yeah um, sure I think we're going to get a little bit of a reset on that and I think we have already last summer and this winter had a bit of a reset on that so I think generally speaking fees will be lower across Europe the one place that I think this isn't true is when you talk about players of a certain level and they're sort of almost recession proof I think there's evidence yeah, for this with how we've looked at, you know, Erling Haaland and the fees have been talked about with him, or Kylian Mbappe is another one. Any of these top, top, top quality players, I think that rule doesn't really apply to them. And so in theory, I see a situation where, yes, they've failed with this Gareth Bale rebuild, rebuild before, but in theory, I could see a situation where Spurs sell Harry Kane for a huge amount of money, 120, 130, 140 million, and they have that money in a market where that money goes way further than it usually would. Um, I think 
it doesn't hurt that Spurs obviously very clearly need a rebuild as it stands. In this market, it's unlikely, because of what I just said, that they'll have enough money for a rebuild from selling players like Dele Alli and Toby Alderweireld, who, who seem to not be in such favour. I don't think they'll have enough money to buy a new centre-back, for example, for that. But if you sell Harry Kane for upwards of £140 million, you could fix the whole squad in theory. Again, it, it depends on your person. But you could potentially, in one departure, fix the entire squad. Um I do think they will be cautious of being burned a second time because the exact same thing has happened, um, you know, poorly. But you could also look at it the other way. Maybe they've learned from their mistakes. Maybe instead of sort of being very excited about the fact they've got loads of money and going, great, great, look at this this big old war chest. Let's spend it on players that clearly aren't suited to our system, like Roberto Soldado. They'll go, right, okay, this is what we're going to do. We've got all this money passed away, da 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 or Or just have enough money that goes further so they can buy enough players till it gets good. The, the United model. Sure. I mean, okay, so I guess there are two things that I would say to all of that. Um, one is just kind of a general thought that um, we kind of came through after our messy chat, which is that these ideas of Kane wanting to leave, that's not happened this week. It's come out this mm-hmm. week, but it's not like he suddenly woke up on Sunday morning and was like, you know what, I've got to go. I've just decided out of the blue, I'm out. This will have been an idea that will have been stewing in his mind for a good, I would say, probably since Mourinho came in. Um, or since Mourinho came in and didn't do well. So, you know, a year minimum, in my opinion. And Kane is still top of the Premier League goal-scoring charts for goals and assists. So Mm. I think he is the Messi example. And again, even more frightening that we could see maybe potentially even better from him. And it also probably shows that he probably still will continue to perform towards the end of the season. Um, The second point is... I agree with you about this whole idea of a rebuild, but we've already talked on the podcast about how Jose Mourinho isn't going to give up his contract and there's a good chance that Spurs aren't going to buy him out of his contract. So he's there for the foreseeable future for the next few years. And I can't think of a manager less equipped to handle a rebuild of a club right now. I just think he just seems tired. Like I don't think he's got it in him to to take... 180 million and turn it into a great squad. I agree, but I think so. So on both those parts, I think I, literally, I think the first thing Spurs do if they sell Harry Kane and they have that money is fire, fire Mourinho. I think that's the first thing they do for yeah, that's spend a, a penny on players. So I think they could then get an exciting. <laughs> so it's a weird and, idea, isn't it? Sell your best player so you can kick <laughs> out the manager. So you can sack the manager. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, but you're no, absolutely I, right. It's a good point. I, I genuinely think that's the first thing they do. Um, Per your second point, just about Harry Kane, you know, this will have been something at the back of his mind. I think that's very possibly true that something, you know, ever since Pochettino, who had a great relationship with, left, there was probably part of him thinking, like, oh, is this my safety? I do think that a line would have been drawn under it very recently with things like, for example, getting knocked out of the Europa League. He might have always had the thought at the back of his mind, but getting knocked out of the Europa League by Dinamo Zagreb and finding themselves in a position where you know, qualifying for the Champions League is really, really unlikely, that would have definitely brought things forward. So I think it's a much more real thought in his mind than it would have been at the start of the season. Again, I, I don't know the guy's speculation, but that's just... The timing, to me, is too coincidental for that not to have been a big catalyst in this in this train of thought. Yeah, um, yeah, fair point. Um, but no, I, I think... You're, you're right about Mourinho and the rebuild. You're right about, you know, it possibly in the back of his mind. I just think that it's all coming together in a certain way. Um, and, you know, Spurs Spurs just need things to change because even with Kane at the moment, they're nowhere near where they were a few years ago. And I think they might just have to bite the bullet and sell Kane as painful as it is so that they can try and get back things. Because, you know, Gareth Bale being the example, they sold Gareth Bale and things went really poorly for a while, but then... They found new life with Harry Kane and they found new life by getting to that Champions League final. They still haven't won anything. They may win the Carabao Cup, but I mean, <laughs> but, you know, it's. I think sometimes you do have to bite the bullet and things get better because that is ultimately over the course of five, six years what happened when they sold Gareth Bale. Yeah, true. I mean, you're right. It's what needs to be done. Accept the rebuild. Accept the fact that you're not going to be at the same level for, for a few years, but, you know, hope that you come out better at the other end. Uh, and in terms of whether or not he should leave personally, 100% I don't think there's any discussion in terms of whether or not Spurs should let him go yeah you're right I can see your points um, I can see them wanting to hold on to him just for pure like muscle memory yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah no uh, good good points there there's one more thing that, that jumped out at me as well I guess just in talking about how what would Kane be like if he moved clubs and we also talked about Jesse Lingard having moved and, and done better how good would Marcus Rashford be if he left Man U? 
Well, I mean that that itself is a, is a whole segment right there, isn't it? I'm sure we could talk about <laughs> talk about rages. But before we uh, we we go on off onto that tangent, because I want to save it for delicious content for another episode, <laughs> I want to talk about uh, something tease. you've raised there. Just, uh, so, we might talk so about it another day. We might not. If, if Harry Kane does leave, where could he realistically go? Um, and for me, the most obvious answers are the Manchester clubs. Um, Kane reportedly would prefer to stay in England if he does move. Uh, and those two are really the only clubs that would be able to afford his fee. Maybe Chelsea as well, but I, just, I don't see Harry Kane crossing to a, to a crosstown rival in a million years, really. Um, yeah, that's fair. And, and I can't imagine Harry Kane trying to learn Spanish. Um. <laughs> well, well, exactly. One of the one of the rumours was like, oh, he'll join up with, uh, with Pochettino at PSG. And I was like... Harry Kane in Paris. I, I, that, that sounds like a fish out of water story that was released in the nineties. But um, to be fair, I about... mean, uh, all all I would say is I could see him rejoining Pochettino. I could see PSG selling Mbappe and using the difference in money between buying Kane and selling Mbappe to buy another couple of of top top players. And then I kind of think you you've got to consider them for you know European contention. Yeah, I, I think it's not impossible. It's maybe it's probably the third most likely for me after the Manchester clubs. We've already talked about Manchester City uh, and Kane uh, a couple of episodes ago, so if you want to hear that, check out episode forty-one. But I just want to talk to you about the potential of Harry Kane at Manchester United because that for me is maybe the most terrifying signing I can imagine happening. Oh, do in you think more than City? Years of the Premier League. Wow. Absolutely, I think it's City. And again, we sort of covered at City about how you know. He's not so much the missing piece to City's puzzle. He doesn't really fit Guardiola's system as well as some other players would, like an Mbappe, for example. But I think he is absolutely a United type type of player. The last time, I mean, just for starters, the last time United won the league, it was off the back of signing a top striker from North London. There's a rich history of Spurs. Uh, Spurs strikers moving to United with great success. He'd be following in the footsteps of Teddy Sheringham, Dimitar Berbatov, um, and I think, you know, he might look at examples like that and go, well, I mean, I think Harry Kane would be a bigger signing either of those, but both of those players went from Spurs having not really won anything. Ironically, actually, the last thing Spurs won was with Dimitar Berbatov in that 07-08 Carabao Cup. So is he going to follow exactly in Berbatov's footsteps, win a League Cup, and then move to United and start winning bigger things? It would be think poetic. United, if you look at how United play with Edinson Cavani, and again, this game against Spurs was such a good example, or if you look at how much they've cried out for just an actual number nine target man aside from sort of Cavani, who's been in and out, I think that Harry Kane fits their system unbelievably well, to the point where, if they got him, mentally, I'd kind of just upgrade them to the level of City on that alone. I would actually be terrified to see Harry Kane at United. See, while I agree, and, you know, we talked about how he doesn't really fit the City system, um, and he would absolutely fit the Man U model of a striker. They always like to have one big striker up top, you know, traditional number nine systems. Kane fits that to a T and I think could actually work really well with some of his other England colleagues as well, um, operating behind him, like Marcus Rashford. Even I could see him play well with Martial. Um, I do just feel like City are so good in all other parts of the pitch and the one thing they need to replace is a striker. Even if Kane's not going to be as good in, in City's system, I do still think that City plus Kane scares me more than... Manchester United plus Kane. Yeah, no, I, I can see that as well. City have much more sort of like the idea of De Bruyne and Kane is is, is enough to, to 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 make you lose sleep. Um, Tingles down the spine. Exactly, but I I just think United and Kane is such a good fit. Not least because um, you know we were talking there about strikers that have gone from Spurs to United. Teddy Sheringham was you know bit of an in and out player for Man United. Um, you know didn't didn't play. I think. 38 games in any of the seasons he was there but the most notable thing he ever did for Man United was of course uh, equalising coming off the bench and equalising in that Champions League final and then setting up the winner any guesses for uh, from you Rupert or from any of the listeners who he set up the winner for? Um, in which year? This is when they won the Champions League it's relevant to United now he, he came off the bench no 98-99 Teddy Sheringham comes off the bench oh, scores oh, a goal Solskjaer. yeah it was Solskjaer wasn't it? Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So is Solskjaer going to look at Kane and, and see Teddy Sheringham behind the eyes and say, I need everything to sign him? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, is football about narratives? I don't know. Whatever. Look at this, man. You were, when you when you, you made the comparison with like the Carabao Cup, I was like, it's a nice reach, but I've enjoyed the symbolism. <laughs> like, I've lost will it Solskjaer look deep within Kane's eyes and see his long-lost ally? Um, that's, I'm going to stop the buck there, but... I mean, no, you're right. I um, 
I like it. Football is narrative. I agree with you there. And there's a good narrative there. I, I do think, you know, again, not a City fan. I'm not a United fan either. But it is nice to imagine that United will get back to their glory days, just in the sense that they represented English football for so long that when you think of like the strength of the Premier League and the strength of English football, it's hard to to dissociate yourself from, from a Manchester United team that isn't looking good. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think they, they they were the team in England for so long that it has become sort of seared in all of our brains that it's, it's it's weird to see them not doing well. True. They also like, they take enough punts that I can really see them spending the money on Kane. Like, I'm just thinking, even back to like David Moyes, when, um, you know, Everton were like, hey, you want to buy Marouane Fellaini? And, Everton, and Manu were like, Oh, yeah, maybe, probably, actually. They did the same with Juan Mata. And again, all these players through, like, Memphis Depay and Ramel Falcao, and they're willing to take a, a, a gamble on players, and they're willing to spend big on players. So, yeah, I think um, I think it all kind of matches up quite nicely with him maybe winning some silverware. Maybe that would be quite a nice way to end his career at, at Spurs by ending the, the trophy drought and then and then moving up north. Uh, yeah, no, no, I think it could be a match made in heaven. Um, looking at a bit of useless trivia, um, I've got one for you that is kind of relevant to what we were just talking about, and that is uh, Spurs and Spurs' fortunes under Jose Mourinho, or perhaps more aptly, Jose Mourinho's fortunes at the head of Spurs. Uh, and that is that this is the first time in Jose Mourinho's entire career that he has lost 10 league games in a season. It's also the same amount of league games that he lost in the entirety of his first spell as Chelsea manager. And if Spurs have dropped one more point from a winning position, they will have dropped more points from winning positions this season than Chelsea 0405 did in total. Wow. <laughs> he's ready for the rebuild, Cam. He's ready to <laughs> he's ready to, to start buying the kids. Um I mean it is wild, isn't it? Just the, the decline in form of, of this a Mourinho team um, maybe we should stop building up that narrative and maybe it's no longer relevant but it does seem like such a departure from his career as a whole um, but yeah cool stats I like it um, yeah I, I think, I think it's the, the one that's crazy for me is the winning positions one partly just because Chelsea 4 or 5 only dropped 19 points which is cr- just a crazily good run and the fact that Spurs have dropped nearly that many they're on 18 currently from winning positions yeah mad madness um, I've got quite a, uh, a fun piece of trivia for you, which I had not come across before. You may well have done before, but it revolves around the, the nickname of Brighton Hove Albion FC. Um, so it all comes about sure. the um, with the Seagulls. The rivalry between Brighton and Crystal Palace, which is sometimes nicknamed the A23 or the M23 Derby. Um, which grew oh, up I think in I can the... already see where this one's going, and I'm, I'm so here for it if it's going the way I think it's going. Nice. So it grew up in the 70s um, as a rivalry. They weren't historic rivals until then because both clubs um, in the space of a few years moved from the third division to the first division at the same time. Um, mm. And at the time, Brighton's nickname was the Dolphins, which I had no idea about. Um, and apparently... In 1975, during like a, some big drinking session with a bunch of Brighton fans, um, they they cooked up a response to Palace fans chanting Eagles, Eagles. And instead, they thought they'd just shout Seagulls, Seagulls. And the nickname like swept through the fan base. And in 77, so just two years later, a Seagull was added to the badge. Um, so just, just quite a funny... Um, Little thing. I mean, I personally don't think of uh, Brighton and Palace as being massive rivals now. I don't think they were massive rivals before the 70s. Um, apparently it left the uh, the club's commercial manager with a bit of a, um, a headache because uh, there's a quote from him saying, like, we had a whole lot of stock with dolphins on it and I, really all I could do was throw it away because we had to concentrate on seagulls from then on. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's that's the best sort of example of fan sentiment changing a changing a club just with sure sure passion and will. Not just that, um, but a hefty amount of pettiness as well. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. That the best bit of all. Uh, no, that's fantastic. Um, finishing off with maybe a little bit of pettiness of my own, I would be remiss, Rupert, remiss if oh, I gosh. didn't talk about Marcelo Bielsa and Pep Guardiola this weekend. 
I mean, it's uh, it's a narrative that we were so excited about at the beginning of the season because of the history these guys have together, and they have not disappointed by any stretch of the imagination. Two one win over Guardiola City. Um, such an exciting game. Let's break it down. Firstly, what was Pep thinking with his lineup? It was one of those games where I looked at the the eleven on my phone. It came out a little little flat of my phone, and as soon as I saw Zinchenko in the midfield, and I know naturally he is sort of a midfielder, but I don't think he's ever played there for City before. As soon as I saw that, I was like, "Oh boy, this is going to be one of those Pep games." Yep, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And I was also sort of like, my initial was just like, oh god. And then I was sort of like, interesting. I wonder how Bielsa is going to like tailor it to this one because I think it's it's sort of like the dance that those two do almost. Guardiola sort of is like, oh, I will outsmart you know Bielsa, and Bielsa's like, ah, oh, I've outsmarted you're outsmarting. Guardiola came out and said that he'd watch. This is a very weird claim, by the way. He claimed that he'd watched twenty hours of Leeds tapes to prepare for the game, which is not that weird in itself. He said that he did it in a single day. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's um, I think it's a flex. I think that's a that's a humble brag. If ever I heard, one. I think it's a flex. I also believe him, incidentally. Oh, absolutely, yeah, that's great. But no, I, I think it was a very interesting game. I think it was a fantastic demonstration of Bielsa's understanding of the game, his, his veteran ability in the game, because the fact that they went a man down and were still able to tailor the game the way they wanted it, I thought was absolutely fantastic. I think that the sort of surrendering the areas of the pitch to Manchester City and specifically John Stones in order to hold the ball in in benign areas and and, and prevent key passes was really, really effective. I think this was, you know, highlighted by the fact that John Stones had 88 passes, 66 of those were in Leeds half, but only one of them was a key pass. Um, I think forcing City to attempt passes into unlikely openings meant that commitment of bodies congested those viable avenues and Leeds were able to win the ball back with multiple City plays ahead of it and open up counter-attacks. You could see, for example, when Alioski got the ball to lay off, um, or sorry, sorry, to play the ball through to Dallas for the winner, there are five City players in front of Alioski when he gets the ball. And so Dallas is still surrounded by City players, but there's a much more easy path for him. I, I just watched it and I was like, this is... If you're a real lover of the tactical side of the sport, this is this is like the the crumpet of, of football matches. Yeah, it was a win for the nerds for sure, and um, so therefore a, a win for us. Um, it was <laughs> funny because I uh, yeah I was watching match of the day and they were talking about the game and um, Gary Lineker was throwing out some statistics like um, you know they had the fewest shots they've had in any game this season, the, the least amount of possession they've had in any game this season. How did they do it? And it's like, well, because that, those were their tactics. That's how they set up specifically to take down Pep's team. You can't try and like match their possession rates. That's not how you win at the Etihad. Um, so it's kind of like a, a funny moment for me being like, well, quite obviously, like because they set up like that so that they could do exactly <laughs> what they did, which was, as you say, give up possession where they didn't need to regain it and you know hit them hard when they needed to. Um, yeah, just congest those more viable avenues. I thought it was really interesting just because, you know, at the same time, we talked about Zinchenko, Zinchenko being in the midfield. The other thing I saw when I looked at that 11, obviously he had seven changes. There was no real creative midfielder on City side. And again, that was something that really, really hurt them and played directly into Bielsa's hands. Bielsa's whole, you know, setup was to make every single time City played the ball, you know, a chance for them to win the ball back and, and to not allow them to get dangerous passes into the final third. John Stones was the key passer in that game because they had no one who was great at that final ball. Bernardo Silva was the closest thing they had to a creative midfielder. Now, Bernardo Silva is a great player, but he's not known for his final ball. He's got, I don't think he's got double, uh, double figures for assists in any season for City so far. And he did get the assist for the goal they did score, but it was like a short layoff. It wasn't an incisive pass breaking through the lines. Yeah, it was just a really weird... Um, formation and and you, we've seen Bernardo Silva try and occupy that position and you know we've kind of had um, in the past Pep trying to compensate for the lack of De Bruyne by using both Bernardo Silva and um, Ike Gundogan in kind of tandem but the lack of Gundogan is a driving force there to complement Bernardo Silva because Bernardo Silva realistically as you say like not only is he not a final third player I don't think he's he's not like a deep line playmaker either He's someone that yeah. operates in, in between the two. So, yeah, they just really struggled to, as you said, create from deep with, you know, as that statistic from John Stones. And also they struggled when, when they got higher up the pitch. So it was super easy for, well, relatively easy for Leeds to just pick them off. And, and yeah, they, they got outplayed. I think um, 
it's one of those things where it kind of feels like maybe Pep spent too long looking at the games that they've played rather than thinking about how they would set up to beat him. Yeah, I think that I think that's exactly how the interaction worked out. Pep spent ages going like Leeds have played this way, Leeds have played that way. And one of the big questions about Leeds this season of, of people who are critics of Leeds' system is, you know, can they correctly manage a low block? Can they play a defensive game on the counter? And that's what they did today. Leeds played this game in a way we haven't really seen them play so far this season, with arguably the exception of the game they played against City early this year. So it was like the one tape that Pep didn't watch. Um, I thought it was just, it was good to see Stuart Dallas have a great game. He's been a real surprise this season. He has sort of come out of nowhere and joined the ranks of players like Arturo Vidal as being like a quintessential Bielsa player, which I love. I think that's absolutely amazing. Um, I think, again, you know, City had 29 shots. Leeds did reduce the sort of, the, the size of these chances with these strategies we were talking about. But again, this sort of ties into what you were talking about with Sterling and Gabriel Jesus as well. If, if you can't chip in with the goals when there are those many, you know, chances, if you can't turn those half chances into bigger chances, like all great forwards do, it's just not a good sign. It, it is, you know, indicative of the, the fact that City do have a role to replace in the summer. Um, and I think just it, it's been really interesting to watch both of these sides play individually this season. And just great to watch them interact here because these two managers are sort of two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, it's just always really good to see them face off. Definitely. I mean, yeah, the, the narrative of, you know, master versus student, but also the fact that it's flipped in the sense that Bielsa is Pep Guardiola's teacher, but Pep Guardiola is coming into it with the bigger side. Just makes this really interesting dynamic parallel. Um, and one that kind of they've had throughout, I think when, when Bielsa was playing in the Liga and, and Pep was managing Barcelona, they had the same thing. So yeah, it's um, I'm here for it. Very here for it. Interesting. Just, just as, a, as a finish, just kind of an interesting thing again, I noticed when I was looking at the table at the end of this weekend. So Leeds are currently 10th, obviously halfway up the table or down the table. They've won exactly as many games as they've lost and they've scored exactly as many goals as they've conceded balance <laughs> it's funny isn't it because you just look at them and you think about them and they don't typify balance but um i've definitely been proved wrong when i questioned their ability to play a low block as you said um which i thought at the beginning of the season i thought they'd really struggle to keep clean sheets i kind of thought you know probably foolishly that they were a side that kind of went all out at all times and maybe didn't have that balance which they do have to change their system and be tactically flexible. So, yeah, credit to, to the players, credit to the manager. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great game to watch. Um, wrapping us up for the week before we resolve guessing game, uh, just a quick one I wanted to mention here, because I'm sure we'll be checking in on it with our relegation watch over the next few weeks, but West Brom beating Southampton 3-0. I know, I know. It's it's exciting. Um, it's always fun to watch a side that's been struggling, you know, turn it around and find new form, a new lease of life. And they've definitely found that in the last maybe eight goals and two games. Um, so you, can they continue to build the form and the morale and the mindset to stay up? What do you reckon? Yeah, I, th- I think very possibly. I mean, we talked about it last week and we will talk about it, you know, a lot more in coming weeks, I'm sure. So I don't want to spend too long, but I always just think it's funny getting that reminder about like footballers it's such a, it's so easy to just have that switch flipped and just have that mental change and go from being a side that just couldn't score to save their lives to scoring buckets full of goals back to back it's just it's, it's it's always an amazing thing to watch i know well they would have been hurt by newcastle's shock win at burnley 2-1 but um they 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 look like they're going to give it a fight they're definitely going to give it a good go um, wrapping us up, shall we resolve guessing game? Do you want to read out your clues uh, and I will have a whack? Thank you. Yes, I will indeed. Um, so, the clues that I have for this player for you this week is that this man had an up and down career. He was once criticised by his manager who said after a game that he came close to a zero rating. He was also on occasion publicly called out by his teammates and even his own agent and once bizarrely wore a rival team's top during a TV appearance, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, led to some criticism from fans. He played with the likes of Hernan Crespo, Michael Essien, Kaká, Luis Figo, and Patrick Vieira, as well as both Colo and Yaya Torre. And he was joint top scorer in the 2012 Euros, and is joint top scorer of all time for his country in the Confederations Cup. Cameron, do you have a player in mind? 
Uh, I, I do, and it was one of those where the rival shirt kind of sold it for me, because I remember this incident vividly, uh, and then looking at all the other clues sort of compounded what I what I thought it was, if I am right. Um, and my guess is going to be the man, the myth, the legend, Mario Balotelli. It is indeed Mario Balotelli, who has played with some incredible players in his career. Um, some absolutely amazing players. Who, who was the... So I remember... The rival shirt incident was when he was an Inter Milan player and he turned up on Italian TV wearing an AC Milan yeah. shirt, which is... Um, which which manager was it that criticised him for being zero? Was it Mourinho? It was Jose Mourinho, yeah. Um, the other fun statistic that I came across, which I was tempted to throw in, was that he's played with Patrick Vieira in two different sides and been managed by him. <laughs> when, when did he play with him the second time? I'm assuming he played once at... Inter, maybe? So Patrick Vieira left um, left Arsenal to join Inter. But what people forget and what I absolutely forgot is that Patrick Vieira then joined Manchester City for like a season. That's right. So, so that was, there was two overlaps. Christ. And then managed him at... At Nice. Oh, oh God, yeah. Jeez. Well, there you go. <laughs> quite funny that, that's, that's um, yeah. a great start I, I wouldn't have known it based on that but um, well I but, thought yeah, that no. was a little too cruel um, but um, yeah no he, he, what a player and just in looking up some of the stuff that he's done in his career like just wild the uh, the antics that he's got up to I think my favourite one is that um, he won the uh, I was going to say as, as well as a, as a clue that he won the European Golden Boy Trophy but I know that you'd looked at that list recently so I didn't want to give it away but he won the Golden Boy Tro- Award in um, 2010, I think. And after he won it, Balotelli claimed that he'd never heard of the player who came second, which was Jack Wilshire. And he said that <laughs> he said that he'd find out who he was, so that he could remind him whenever he saw him that he came second. <laughs> I mean, we love it. We love to see it. Uh, and and you know, two players there who sadly didn't live up to the potential we all hoped they would. Um, settling the score this week was a bit of a, a, a rocks affair because someone forgot to do the last four results, um, yeah, which means uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I ran away with a pretty confident win. I like to think I would have already because I got at Liverpool versus Aston Villa correct, exactly, and I also predicted that West Brom would beat Southampton, which is my little sort of upset guess, but I suppose we'll never know. You could have brought it back, but you didn't in this case. So I win that round. Um, Rupert, I think that does it for this week great to talk to you as always cam thank you and thank you to everyone for listening we'll catch you next time cheers guys bye armchair analyst was recorded remotely by cameron mcdonald and rupert meadows the album artwork was provided by our good friend amshel